Turn to Luke, our topic. Anna testifies on behalf of the child. And uh, we're continuing with at Simeon last week. I'm going to read, begin uh, chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 25. We'll look at Simeon, then we'll look at Anna, and we'll wrap up this section. <clears throat> and then we'll turn our attention to the Magi. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yea, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And then here's our text. Keep in mind this is happening virtually almost at the exact same time. She's there too. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her vir- She was of her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. And we're going chronologically, so we're going to... The incident when he's 12 years old, we'll look at that at a later time. Then we're going to turn next to the Magi, which happens when Jesus is around two years old. So in verse 36 and following, Luke introduces us to another witness, a second witness, uh, Anna who is carefully described by John. The message isn't, what she says is not stated, but we're told all about Anna. Uh, She's not mentioned in any other place in the scriptures, only here, only in Luke. And there are a number of things recorded about Anna that qualify here as a good, reliable, trustworthy witness regarding the Christ child. Okay, both Matthew and Luke are focusing on the divine witness, the testimony regarding Jesus. First, Anna was a prophetess and thus had a spirit-given ability to recognize that Mary's baby was the Christ and to describe his special salvific role biblically. And by the way, the name Anna is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Hannah, which means grace. She's present when Mary comes in to the court of the women, 
And God directed her and gave her spiritual insight to recognize the child and then to publicly proclaim his significance to those around her. And there are a number of women prophetesses mentioned in the Bible. So it's not unusual to have a woman prophet. Miriam, Exodus 15.20, Deborah, Judges 4.4, Huldah, 2 Kings 22.14, Isaiah's wife is a prophetess, Isaiah 8.3, and the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, Acts 21.9. So it's something in the Old Testament, something in the New Testament. Now, are there a lot of them? Apparently not, but they, they were there, and they did receive divine revelation from God. Although women are not permitted to teach in public worship, that's quite clear in both Testaments, in both the New and Old Testament, or hold positions of ecclesiastical authority over men. They were privileged at times to be prophetesses who received direct revelations from God for the people. And you say, well, women are not allowed to teach. They're not allowed to speak during church services. That's quite clear in Corinthians. Uh, well, either they spoke after the worship was over, which is the view of the ancient church on this, and the, uh, or it's regarded as not teaching because it's a direct word from God with no, it's, there's no application or anything. It comes directly from God. So it's not regarded as the same as exposition of Scripture. Now, after four centuries, when the voice of prophecy had been silent, God was raising up witnesses to announce the presence and significance of his Son. Before the completion of the canon, 66 books of the Bible, the 27 books of the New Testament, Prophecy was crucial for understanding different doctrines and for giving special rebukes with warnings and calls to repentance in times of declension. We have the New Testament, we have the completed canon, we have the full explanation of the person and work of Christ. We don't need continuing prophecy. We don't. We have a completed canon, and Paul speaks to that in, in Corinthians where he says that once the perfect has come, and the perfect there, the context indicates he's talking about the Bible. He's not talking about uh, the second coming of Christ, talking about the Bible. Once the perfect has come, prophecy will cease, he says. Second, we're told a number of things about her that emphasize her piety and faithfulness to Yahweh. One, she belonged to the tribe of Asher, but her family had rejected the apostasy of the tribe of Asher and had migrated to Judah. And by the way, the fact that Anna and Luke, of course, know which tribe she belongs to, so over seven centuries after the destruction of the northern tribes, indicates the importance of the Jews' understanding their genealogies and supports the Jewish sources that tell us that detailed genealogies of all the tribes were stored at the temple complex. And I'm sure Eidersheim is good about this. Because of their looking to the Messiah to come, and he had to come from the tribe of Judah, and also the who, had to, who, who was qualified to be priest and serve in the different offices of the priest. For, for example, some family members played cymbals, some played the timbrels, some played this and some played that. Detailed records were kept at the temple. 
So here's seven centuries later, and she knows what family she's from. <clears throat> now, Asher was the second son of Leah's handmaid, Zilpah. And Leah named him Asher, which means happy, because his birth made her happy. He was the eighth son of Jacob. Genesis 29, 31 to 30, uh, 24, and also 35, 16 to 20, and uh, 22 to 26. Now, Asher was one of those tribes in the north. It was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. Those who were not killed or starved to death, and a lot of them were, were carried off uh, into captivity, uh, most sold into slavery. <clears throat> because there was no return and restoration like what occurred with Judah after 70 years in Babylon, the northern tribes are commonly referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. And you've all heard that expression. The lost tribes of Israel. They were never restored. But Leah and her family are proof that a faithful remnant within the northern tribes rejected the widespread idolatry of the north and moved to Judah so they could faithfully worship and serve Yahweh. So the lost tribes were not completely lost, for God preserved a holy remnant. And I should have looked this up, because I've written about this. I have a book on covenanting it. There's, a, there's one of the covenants that are made. I think it's Josiah. I forget which one. But it actually says that the faith, there were faithful people from the north that came down to Judah because they wanted to covenant with God and be faithful to the law. And to do that, you have to understand, the north was full of idolatry and syncretism, and so they had to go to the, to, to worship God biblically, they had to go to the south. In the north, they had Dan and Bethel, and they had the golden calves, and they had a corrupt system of worship. So she was of a faithful line. This holy heritage is one reason her father, Penuel, Hebrew Penuel, is mentioned. When Jacob had returned to his homeland and was alone at the river Jabbok, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night and demanded a blessing. You're all familiar with the story. At this time, his name was changed by God from Jacob to Israel. In response to these amazing events, Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, which means the face of God. Genesis 32.30 I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So, I ask you, why does Luke go into such detail about her lineage and her father's name when nothing is mentioned about Simeon? And the answer is Asher, who's the eighth son, whose birth number represents salvation and recreation by Jesus Christ. Remember, the number eight is a sacred number in Scripture. It's a special number. <coughs> it indicates recreation. Circumcision on the eighth day, which represents regeneration. Eight persons are in the ark, which represents a new beginning, a new creation. Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day. It's the first day of the week, which is seven plus one. It's the eighth day, recreation. And he is the eighth born son of Jacob, or Israel. 
And then Penuel means face of God. And by beholding the baby Jesus, Anna was literally looking into the face of God incarnate. So I just, it's interesting. Scripture uh, doesn't say things accidentally. Sometimes they're not significant and sometimes they are. And I think this is significant because he goes into detail. And then number two. She served God day and night with prayers and fastings. At the temple. Now, most scholars do not believe that she was uh, given a place to reside in the temple complex. Uh, the vast majority think that, that she didn't actually sleep there. Um, although, given her exceptional piety, the priest may have made a rare exception and have set up some place, some space in the many buildings for her to sleep. It's highly unlikely, though. She probably... It just means that she was there every day when the temple was open, praising God and worshiping God and praying and fasting. In either case, her life was completely dedicated to the worship and service of God. She's a widow. She's very, very old. She doesn't have any family responsibilities. So what does she do? Does she go out and party and, you know, have fun? No. She dedicates herself to the serving of God, and Luke wants us to know that. <clears throat> The expression night and day corresponds to the Jewish reckoning of time. She awoke early in the morning while it was still dark and ministered to God throughout the whole day. She continually crucified her own flesh and kept her life in subjection to God, for at her age she had no other responsibilities. So she was a champion of prayer and a champion of communing with God. She communed with God as her closest friend and covenant Lord. She prayed for her own needs and the needs of others. And like Simeon, she no doubt prayed about the coming of the Messiah. She, looked, hey, she had hope in the coming of the Messiah. And the precious salvation and peace that he would bring. You have to remember, Simeon and her are godly, and they're living in a society that's not godly. They're living in a society that's grossly backslid and corrupt. The leadership was corrupt. The religious leaders were corrupt. The Pharisees, who were the strict ones, taught salvation by, by works. Her dedication and fervent love of God is an excellent example that obviously we should all emulate and follow. Because she puts us to shame. You know, oh, I can't pray for, you know, people complain. You know, I pray for 10 minutes and my mind is wandering and I, I, you know, I can't think of what to pray. Well, come on. Look at Hannah. And it went far beyond the normal Jewish practices at that times for set times of prayer and the common practice of fasting. Luke is establishing her incredible dedication and piety, which no doubt was known by the people in Jerusalem at that time, to make sure that everyone takes her testimony about Jesus seriously. Okay, the Bible talks about the necessity of two witnesses, and it the two witnesses could not be known liars or corrupt. They had to be faithful witnesses, and she's obviously that. God set in place several reliable, excellent witnesses at the time of the Incarnation to tell the people that their Messiah had arrived. The fact that the shepherds, Simeon's and Anna's testimony had little effect reveals a serious declension, apathy, and complacency that dominated Israel in those days. And we're going to really see that when we look at the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem. you think they'd be all excited. Hey, the Messiah's here. Let's go find him. Let's worship it. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't care less, and Herod wants to kill him. And then number three. Anna's faithfulness had extended over an incredible length of time. She was of great age who had wit was widowed only after only seven years of marriage. The Greek used in verse 37 is somewhat ambiguous and could be interpreted to say that Anna was 84 years old, or it could mean that she was a widow for 84 years. It could be either one. If she was a widow for 84 years, and she was married at the normal time in those days for uh, Jewish girls, which would have been about 14 or 15, they got married very young back then, people didn't live as long as they do now, <clears throat> she'd be 105 or 106 years old. Either interpretation is possible, and both indicate a very long life of faithfulness and consistency. Okay, the thing about the Christian life that's so critical is not just being fervent and uh, on fire for Christ. You've got to maintain that your whole life. I know tons of people who were at periods look great. You think, what a wonderful Christian, and now they're totally apostate. And then there are others who were on fire, and now they're very lukewarm. So she maintained this fervency her whole life, which is amazing. The economic challenges and troubles of being a widow in a largely agricultural society were great. Yet by God's grace, she overcome all her, overcame all her troubles, trials, and temptations. She fully held all the qualifications in 1 Timothy 5, 9 and following for the order of widows. Note verse 6 of Timothy where it says, the godly widow trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So one could not find a better, more reliable and commendable witness than Anna. Well, let's look at Anna's thanksgiving and witness. In verse 38, we are told that Anna does what Anna does when she sees Mary with her baby. And coming in that instant... She gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who were looking for redemption in Israel. So Anna is already in the women's court praying when Mary came in with the baby. She was already there. And it was obviously providential that she was in a place near to where Mary was so she could see. Perhaps she witnessed Simeon take the child in his arms. She came here and she started praising God regarding the Savior. However, her words are not recorded by Luke. I wish they were, but they're not. The Gospels have to maintain a certain, uh, they have to be highly edited, otherwise they'd be way too long. <clears throat> and, of course, as you know, John in his Gospel says, if everything was recorded that Jesus said and did, the books couldn't contain it. The imperfect tense is used indicating that she continued her thanksgiving after Mary and Joseph departed to Nazareth. And it was very old, and like Simeon, she was overjoyed to be an eyewitness of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The verb gave thanks here, and this is, this, this, listen how long this word, antho, malo, geomai, is very unusual, and is only found here in the New Testament. It's, a, it's an unusual word for worship. It means to acknowledge fully and celebrate fully with thanksgiving. And the same verb is used in the Septuagint version of Psalm 78, 13, at the conclusion of a song praying for the restoration of Jerusalem. Very significant. Did Luke choose that verb because of that psalm? 
We don't know, but it's interesting. Now, Anna spoke to those in the Jewish community who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. That's interesting. She only speaks to those who are expectantly awaiting for God's messianic intervention in, in the world. Her ministry was focused on those who already had faith and hope in the coming of the kingdom. There was already a bond of friendship and fellowship with such people in the city. So in the days of the infant Jesus, there was a remnant according to God's gracious election that God was communicating with by his prophets. So he was preparing the true Israel within national Israel from the very infancy of the Messiah. And you have to understand, these are corrupt times. The Sadducees were liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the existence of angels. They didn't accept anything outside of the five books of Moses. They were totally corrupt. They were liberals. The Pharisees were legalists who were totally corrupt as well. So Anna focuses on the remnant. The phraseology used by Luke is in, influenced by Psalm, uh, excuse me, by Isaiah 52.9. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. So God conferred upon Simeon and Anna a great honor in that they were selected not only to meet and behold the Messiah face to face, but also received special revelation concerning him. These two aged and eminent saints were used to give hope to covenant keepers, to the faithful, to the remnant within Jerusalem and Israel, who were awaiting the coming of their Savior and King. So God goes out of his way to save his elect. While life goes on and people go about their business, Yahweh is at work preparing the path of the king even before the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, he's the great preparer, Isaiah 40. He's the one that makes the path straight. He's the one that levels the hills to prepare the way of the king. But there were other minor figures, more minor figures before him, way back at the birth of Christ. Now, what a blessing those possess who have faith and are awaiting for God to fulfill the promises in his word. Now, we who are alive now, over 2,000, you know, 2,000 years later, are looking forward with the eye of faith to the day Jesus will return and complete our salvation with the resurrection of the body and our glorification. That's our hope. And then we look at the return to Galilee. So Luke is pretty amazing. The testimony of the divine angel. The testimony of the angelic army, the hosts of heaven. Which turns into the testimony of the shepherds. Then we have the testimony of the prophet Simeon. And then we have the testimony of the prophetess Anna. Focusing on baby Jesus the Christ. And here's verse 
39 and 40. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. So as this section comes to a conclusion, Luke again emphasizes that Joseph and Mary carefully obeyed all that the law required regarding Mary and her son. The inspired author wants to emphasize that Jesus' parents were godly, righteous, faithful covenant keepers, but also the Messiah, the baby Jesus, even in his infancy, had to obey the law to the letter. Luke goes on to inform us that after all that was prescribed was fulfilled, the family departed for their home in Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the Holy Spirit, this is interesting, who inspired and guided what Luke put in his gospel and what he left out, completely skips over the visitation of the Magi, the flight into Egypt, and the massacre of the infants in and around Bethlehem which obviously is a great period of time. And in the next thing, he goes directly to Jesus is 12 years old, visiting the temple. Now, Matthew was probably written first, and he knew Matthew had covered those things very extensively. He just skips it over. Now the Holy Spirit guided him. Now, Luke certainly knew about these events from Mary. The mother of our Lord was one of his main sources for the birth and early narrative of, the, of his gospel. Okay, liberal commentators are just stupid idiots. They say things like, well, he didn't know about these things. What do you mean he didn't know about these things? Where do you think he learned about all these events? He interviewed Mary. Joseph died. Joseph wasn't around, but he interviewed Mary, and he learned these things from eyewitnesses. He knew, and of course, he probably, if, if gospels... Matthew's Gospel was out, and it probably was. I'm sure he had read Matthew's Gospel as well. In addition, the slaughter of the males under two years of age was very public, a very public scandalous event. And so he knew about that. In God's providence, Matthew, who is writing for a predominantly Jewish audience, records the homage paid to the newborn king by the Gentile Magi, while Luke, writing primarily to a Gentile audience, records the prophecy and worship of the Jews and the careful fulfilling of the law at the temple. Very interesting. This shows the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture. Things which may seem a bit strange to us in the Gospel histories always resolve themselves to a beautiful, glorious, edifying harmony. And uh, when I talk about the visitation of the Magi, I'm going to talk about why it's so important in the Gospel of Matthew. These two accounts do raise a question regarding precisely what happened between the Holy Parents' appearance at the temple and the appearance of the Magi. If we take Luke 2.39, excuse me, 2.39 at face value, the Holy Family left after Mary's purification and the dedication of Jesus, and they returned to Joseph's home in Nazareth and Galilee. Isn't that the impression you get when you read that? They're done with all the stuff at the temple. They obeyed the law in exhaustive detail regarding what they had to do, and then they went home. That's what it says. But when we read the account of the appearance of the Magi in Matthew 2, we get the impression that the Magi visited the Holy Family in the city of Bethlehem. 
and the tradition of the ancient Christian church favors such a view, and their tradition has certainly influenced most modern scholars and denominations. Well, there are a number of explanations of what appears to be a discrepancy. One common view held by respected commentators such as William Hendrickson is that since Luke does not use the word immediately in verse 39, we can place over two years of events between their first visit to the temple with the baby, Jesus, and their return to Nazareth. Here's what he says. The evangelist does not say that after the events of the 40th day, the little family immediately made for the north. Room is left for Matthew's account of the coming of the wise men, the flight to Egypt, the slaughter of the innocents, and the return of Joseph and Mary and their child from Egypt. In other words, for the events reported Matthew 2, 1 to 21. At 2, 22 and 23, Matthew and Luke, Luke 2, 39, are together again. With this difference that Matthew states the reasons why the family did not settle in Judea, but returned to Nazareth. Okay, that's end of quote. So that's one view. Another view is that Joseph and his family did return to Nazareth, but after some time came back to Bethlehem for some business. And this return to Bethlehem coincided with the coming of the Magi. And variations of this view are found in Matthew Poole, J.C. Ryle, Alfred Nevin, and John Gill. So they take Luke, 239 at face value. Yeah, they went back to Nazareth, but something happened around two years down the road, and they returned to Bethlehem for some reason and were living in a house in Bethlehem. Even though Luke 2.4 2, makes it clear that Joseph and Mary went from Nazareth to Bethlehem due to the census, it is indeed possible that they decided to stay around, and around two years later, the Magi found them living in a house. Matthew 2.11. <coughs> and we know that it's around two years later, because Herod determined when the star first appeared from the Magi, and that's why he decided to kill all the babies around two years of age and under, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. So the events of the Magi happened at least two years later than the birth of Jesus. It is also possible that after living in Nazareth for a time, Joseph had business dealings in Bethlehem. That's possible. Another possibility is that after they inquired of where the Christ was to be born and were told to go to Bethlehem by Herod, Matthew 2, 4-8, they were supernaturally directed by the star to where Jesus was currently living in Nazareth. Okay, everybody, so the Magi go to Beth, they go, they go to Jerusalem. The star directs them to Jerusalem. It's interesting, the star doesn't direct them to Bethlehem. It directs them to Jerusalem because they want to present the fact that all the leaders agree that the, the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. They wanted to establish that. And they also wanted to show the indifference of the leadership, the Pharisees and the scribes, to Jesus. They didn't go seek out the newborn king. They could care less. And they wanted to show Herod, the king of the Jews. The Gentiles want to come and worship him, but the king of the Jews wants to kill him. Now, Bethlehem is assumed because Jewish scholars determined that that is where the Messiah had to be born. But then they were directed by the star to a particular house. And it doesn't say Bethlehem. 
If they followed Herod's orders, why did they need to follow the star to a particular house? Bethlehem was a small village. The shepherds had no problem finding the baby. In any case, any of, the, any of these views are possible. It does seem strange, however, that Joseph would leave behind his house and business in Nazareth to resettle in Bethlehem when he only went there for the census. And I'll discuss this topic further in our discussion of the coming of the Magi. One thing we know for sure, the Bible doesn't make mistakes. And this is not a discrepancy. It's easily handled. But those are the three options that I think are possible. Probably the most popular is the one that, yeah, they did, 239, they did go back to Nazareth, but some kind of business or something has them in Bethlehem two years later. But it's possible the star took them to Nazareth. This is what's interesting. People, you know, if, if the star took them to Bethlehem in the first place, they didn't need to go to Jerusalem. The star took them to Jerusalem for those events in Jerusalem were significant, showing that he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. In fact, they wanted to kill him. So the natural reading of Luke 2.39 is that the Holy Family returned to Joseph's home in Nazareth after Mary's purification and the dedication of the child was completed. And then in verse 40, we find what scholars refer to as a second conclusion to this section which is a report on Jesus' progress or growth. Here's verse 40. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. In this passage, Luke is focusing our attention on the true humanity of Jesus. He was born just like any other baby, and he grew physically. When the verse says he grew in spirit, it simply means that the intellectual powers of his human mind expanded, improved, and grew daily. Now, Jesus was God, a very God, therefore, as a baby. And then as a young child, he was upholding all the atoms of the universe and was omniscient. As God, he was truly God. His nature did not change in the Incarnation. But even though the two natures were hypostatically united into one person, and this is important, there was no communication of properties. That's important because Lutherans deny that. That's how they get the consubstantiation. You know, how can Jesus' body be in the host every Sunday all over the world in millions, uh, in, in hundreds of thousands of churches? Well, they have to believe that the divine property was somehow communicated to the human nature, which is clearly unscriptural. In his human nature, Jesus had to eat, sleep, and grow. He had to learn. He had to be catechized, and he needed to study and learn the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. He was truly a man. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to hold a, a fork or a spoon and eat by himself. He had to learn all these things. He was truly a man. The person of Christ as both God and man is a deep and mysterious topic, but is something clearly revealed and taught in the scriptures. Anybody who denies the divinity of Christ is a fool, an idiot, an imbecile. Because it's obvious, it's caught throughout the Old and New Testament that Jesus is fully God. He's truly God in every way. 
Because Jesus did not have a sinful nature, his growth in spiritual matters and true wisdom was not hindered by sin and vain distractions. Therefore, his growth in knowledge and wisdom excelled his peers. So even though he was a perfectly normal human boy with a normal developing brain and physical body, his lack of sin and the pollution of sin caused him to apply himself to spiritual duties and knowledge with a single-minded dedication and diligence. I mean, could you imagine if we had no sin? We're you want to study the Bible all the time. You want to pray all the time. You want to do all these things. You don't have the flesh telling you, no, I'd rather go watch, uh, uh, I'd rather go watch the Three Stooges or something. You, you, you're very dedicated. Consequently, we will see that when he is only 12 years of old, the teachers and theologians of, of that day, were, verse 47, were astonished at his understanding and answers. He's 12 years old. He can talk to the top theologians of that day, and, he, and he's blowing their mind. His knowledge is mind-boggling. His wisdom is mind-boggling at the age of 12. And by the way, the fact that he had a true human nature, all these apocryphal stories, all the, you know, these, these the Gospel of Thomas and all these uh, Cyto-Gospels, these phony Gospels, they have, you know, the toddler Jesus doing all these miracles and doing all these crazy things. That's all nonsense. He was truly a man in every way. And so we know that all those cytogospels are false because they contradict Luke. And then Luke adds, the grace of God was upon him. Now, the word grace, when used of saved sinners like us, means the undeserved or unmerited favor of God. It's always unmerited. It's always undeserved. Yahweh has mercy and grace upon us due to the saving work of Christ. We don't deserve it. But because of what Christ did, he has mercy and grace upon us through Christ. And the grace and mercy that we receive is always totally undeserved. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve the penalty of the second death and hell. But Jesus endured the penalty in our place and imputed his righteousness to our account. On the day of judgment, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see your filthy, sin-stained works and all your failings, which are thousands of times. He sees the perfect, impeccable righteousness of Christ. We receive this precious gift of salvation solely through faith. But with Jesus... God's grace or favor is not an undeserved or unmerited favor. For Jesus' behavior and thought, word, and deed was perfect, impeccable. Sinless. He was sinless. God's favor was deserved. God favored Christ because he obeyed God's will perfectly and fulfilled the law in exhaustive detail. Remember it is baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He obeyed in everything, exhaustively. What we could never do because of our sin and guilt and total depravity or the pollution of sin, Jesus did with perfection as the second Adam. That Jesus was, was aware of his mission at a very young age is seen in his response to his parents who find him discussing theology at the temple with the, at the age of 12. 
This is Luke 2.49. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Remember, they, they leave and they, they, they forget to look and see if their son's with them. And they get down the road and they go, whoa, 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 where's our son? They go back to the temple. There he is debating theology with the, with the best theologians of that day. And he's blowing their mind. I must be about my father's business. And then we'll just introduce this because I hate to stop in the middle of something and introduce a new topic. But we'll just introduce it because I ran, I ran out here. Uh, let's look at the visitation of the wise man from the east. I'll just introduce this. And I'll read Matthew 2, 1 to 15. Because this is the next chronological thing in Jesus' life. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the child was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from what time the star appeared. <coughs> and when he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east came, went before them, till it came and stood over the, where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. I think it's obvious that the star has to be supernatural. This is not simply a comet or some kind of uh, alignment of planets, which a lot of scholars believe. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child, who's no longer a baby, with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now the Gospel of Matthew focuses our attention on different yet crucial witnesses to the coming of the Messianic King of Israel. While Luke has the angel from heaven, the multitudes of the angelic hosts, the army of angels, the shepherds, and the male and female prophet of God, Matthew presents the guiding star and the adoration of the Gentile Magi. Each author is guided by the Holy Spirit to select certain important, relevant historical facts to help us know and understand the coming of the Messiah and its significance for the world. <coughs> now, Matthew is writing for a predominantly Jewish audience, while Luke is writing for a predominantly Gentile audience. And all scholars agree about that. 
And therefore, Matthew focuses attention on the fulfillment of prophecy. An important prophetic testimony that Matthew wants his Jewish readers to understand is the Jewish rejection of the Christ and the Gentile reception of him with joy. We find this in the highly contrasted receptions of the birth of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi, and we'll get into all this next week in detail, the Magi, who are Gentile civil officials, they're like a class of, of astrologer slash scientists who also were involved in choosing political leaders in uh, Medo-Persia, worship Jesus and shower him with precious gifts. The very best that men had to offer in those days, gold, frankincense, and myrrh were all highly expensive. They were for rich people. The Jewish leadership not only showed no interest in the newborn king, but Herod, the current king of the Jews, attempts to murder him. Now think, if you're, you're, you're a Christian, you're a believer, or let's say you're a Jew, you're a godly Jew, you're, you're a believing Jew, and somebody comes and says, hey, the Messiah's been born, and we saw the star, uh, help us figure out the city where the scripture prophesied he will be born in. Wouldn't you want to go see him? Wouldn't you be interested in seeing him? And they don't. There's no interest among the religious or political leadership of Israel. His disinterest in the truth and lust for power, we're talking about Herod, for worldly power, made him a dedicated enemy of the Messiah. He chooses murder, bloodshed, and widespread slaughter of the innocents over faith and obedience to the Messianic king. So from his birth to his death, the political and religious leadership of Israel reject him, oppose him, and regarded him as their chief enemy to their own power, prestige, and worldly glory. As John says, John 1.11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The Magi did. Gentiles did. So as we begin our study of the Magi, there are two questions that need to be answered. Now, this is just way, keep this in mind. We'll have, Lord willing, we'll get to this next Sunday uh, to help us understand the, this vital section of Scripture. Who were the Magi? First, who were the Magi? Second, what was the star that directed them to Jerusalem? The word Magi translated wise men in some translations, modern translations. The Greek is Magoi, singular magos. Our word magi comes from the Latin magi, singular magus. And the Greek word is a transliteration of the Medo-Persian or modern Iran word. It comes from Medo-Persia. The word is used by the ancient historian Herodotus to describe one of the tribes of the Medes. The word in the group it describes goes at least back to the 7th century BC. By the Roman period, Of dominance. The word was corrupted and changed into the noun meaning magician or sorcerer. Uh, so it takes a very negative thing. And we'll look at, we'll have to look at, this is one reason I stopped. We, we want to look at this in more detail. But, uh, and we'll have to see the influence of Daniel, obviously. But, but, but when they saw, when they saw the star, and they finally arrive in Bethlehem. I mean, and when they finally arrive in Jerusalem is a period of around two whole years. 
So the idea that uh, when it says they came from the east, the idea that it was Arabia, which is not that far away, I think is just untenable. It, by the time all the, these guys got together and had a meetings and, and figured out what the significance of the star was and traveled all the way to Jerusalem, by that time, two years had gone by. So, but we'll look at this next week. It's extremely important. It's very interesting. But the, 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 they represent the Gentiles who receive Christ. The Jews reject him and try to kill him. And, of course, in the end, they do kill him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you. Help us to be more like Anna. That dedication, that perseverance. Persevering for over eight decades in faithfulness to God. Oh, that we could be like Anna, Lord. Help us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Bend our hearts to obey. Cause us to be covenant keepers. Cause us to not lose that love and fervency for Christ. Help strengthen it, Lord, that we would be faithful to your word and obey your holy law. In Jesus' name, amen.